I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, the host of On Becoming. Today we're talking about loneliness. And as I said in the previous episode, I think it's one of the most significant problems of our time. And it's unfortunately only getting worse. But the good thing is that there are definitely things you can do about loneliness. Before we turn to that topic, though, I'd like to take a moment to remind everyone that the Gautamer course will be starting in October. So many people look back on college as the four best years of their life. A lot of this is due to the new sense of freedom, the lasting friendships, and for some, a bit of revelry on the weekends. I suspect that for many people, college wouldn't be one of those times where you'd feel particularly lonely. In fact, one of the wonderful things about attending college is that you're with a large cohort of people with whom you probably share a lot of things. One thing about the college experience that many people don't realize until they've graduated is that it's a time when you're able to do something really unusual. Namely, take four years of your life and just focus on learning. Whether you're taking Intro to Accounting or Taylor Swiftery History and Literature through Taylor Swift, and as I've said before, yes, that was a real class offered at UT Austin in 2022. It's a rare gift to be able to dedicate yourself so completely to topics that you're really interested in. In this spirit, I'd like to invite you back into the classroom to study Hans Ger Gadamer, a man that I knew both as a teacher and a friend and a philosopher that I'm certain will change the way you see the world. If scheduling is a concern for you, please know that we'll be setting up a poll for all who are interested so we can set up dates and times that work for everyone. If the cost of the course 200 for those who don't subscribe on Patreon, 160 for anyone who does subscribe on Patreon up to the 1st of October. Please know that we are more than happy to work with you to make sure that resources do not present a barrier. For those of you that are interested, please don't hesitate to get in touch with any questions. We can be reached by email at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com, or you can send us a DM on Twitter at onbecomingpod or X at Unbecoming Pod. If you find that podcast has been helpful to your journey of becoming, perhaps you could consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast or paypal at unbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. This is on a book titled Loneliness, Human Nature and the Need for Social Connection. It appeared in 2008 and it's authored by John T. Siapo and William Patrick. It's a deep study of why human beings experience loneliness. They point out that the subject of loneliness has long been addressed in various ways. As you probably know, one of the Hebrew Bible's explanations for the existence of both men and women is that Adam was created first and was lonely. God saw this and decided to create Eve out of one of his ribs. In Ovid's Metamorphoses, Deucalion survived the flood sent by Zeus to destroy those living in Hellas by putting himself in a chest. But then he discovered that he was alone. Zeus promises to grant whatever wish he has, and Deucalion decides to ask that Zeus create other people so that he wouldn't be alone. Our authors begin the book with a story about someone named Katie Bishop who grew up in a big family in a closely knit community. Not too surprisingly, she was dying to get away from all of that. Once she finished college, she took a job about as far away from her family and community as possible. 
it required a lot of traveling. After six months of this new life, she had gained 15 pounds and felt disconnected from her new colleagues and neighbors. What makes this story so instructive is that according to the authors, her genetic profile was such that it was set for very high standards of social connection. In other words, she came from a background in which there were deep connecting bonds in her family and community at large. Of course, everyone has a need for social connection. In studies of what people find that gives them the most happiness, love, intimacy, and social affiliation are clearly more important than wealth, fame, and even physical well-being. In the previous episode, I mentioned that loneliness is about as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes per day, and even worse for your health than drinking more than six drinks of alcohol per day. You might find it surprising that there's an actual scale to measure loneliness called the UCLA Loneliness Scale. It's got 20 questions, and it begins with such questions as, how often do you feel that you are in tune with the people around you? Second question, how often do you feel that you lack companionship? Third question, how often do you feel that there is no one you can turn to? And it ends with these questions. Question 18, how often do you feel that people around you are there but not with you? 19, how often do you feel that there are people you can talk to? 20, how often do you feel that there are people you can turn to? The goal of the exercise is to get a rough idea of the extent of one's loneliness. Everyone feels lonely at times. The main questions are something like, how often do you feel lonely? And is loneliness an acute or chronic condition for you? One of the assumptions made by the researchers is that loneliness is social pain that is very similar to physical pain. Physical pain may not always be in our best interests, but normally physical pain acts as a way of protecting us from danger. That's why you pull your hand away from the fire. As they put it, our forebears depended on social bonds for safety and for the successful replication of their genes in the form of offspring who themselves survived long enough to reproduce. Feelings of loneliness told them when those protective bonds were endangered or deficient, in the same way that physical pain serves as a prompt to change behavior. The pain at burning skin tells you to pull your finger away from the frying pan. Loneliness developed as a stimulus to get humans to pay more attention to their social connections and to reach out toward others to renew frayed or broken bonds. I think this origin story makes a great deal of sense. It's also instructive that they conclude that the state of being not lonely is like that state of being not thirsty or not in pain. Note that there is no English term that means not thirsty, and there's not a term either for not in pain. The pain that we feel from loneliness is processed in the same part of the brain that processes physical pain. Of course, I've already done an episode on trauma and the physical effects that emotional trauma has on our bodies. Loneliness is like a trauma in the sense that it can easily lead to further problems. Now I'm quoting from the authors. The discovery that feelings of social rejection isolation, and reactions to physical pain share the same hardwire begins to suggest why 
Once loneliness becomes chronic, you cannot escape it by merely coming out of your shell, losing weight, getting a fashion makeover, or meeting Mr. or Ms. Wright. The pain of loneliness is a deep, disruptive hurt. The disruption, both physiological and behavioral, can turn an unmet need for co connection into a chronic condition. And when it does, changing things for the better requires taking into account the full depth and complexity of the role loneliness plays in our biology, in a, our evolutionary history. Following Katie Bishop's lead in trying to make ourselves feel better with fatty foods and reruns of Friends will only make matters worse. From what we can tell about our ancestors, they were particularly concerned with events like weddings, births, and deaths, all of which usually have their own customs and ceremonies. There are ways in which we show our love and concern for others, and these have been formalized. The authors point out that human beings generally care a great deal about what others think of us, which is why we have phobias that are social in nature. They cite speaking in public, being in crowds, and meeting new people. These are common phobias. It's instructive that banishment remains an effective punishment and that being placed in solitary confinement is perhaps the worst punishment short of death or torture. And perhaps it may even be worse than those. One of the reasons our brains increased in size is because of the need for social interaction. We needed to learn to process all the signals sent to us by words or otherwise. Just a quick note. Neuroscientists now believe that only 10% of our communication with one another is done by way of speech. That's an enormous number. In the previous episode, I mentioned that loneliness increases your risk of heart disease by 29%, dementia by 50%, and stroke by 32%. But we now know that there's a strong link between loneliness and Alzheimer's disease. Loneliness can also negatively affect your immune system. Cacciapo and Patrick believe that there are three major factors to consider in understanding loneliness. The first of these is what they call level of vulnerability to social disconnection. All of us have grown up in circumstances that are both similar and different to those of others. You may well have grown up in a family in which a strong connection between the family members simply wasn't the norm. Or you might have grown up in a family that has very strong and tight connections between its members. How you grow up is going to have enormous consequences for what kinds and what levels of social connection you're comfortable with. The second aspect is the ability to self-regulate the emotions associated with feeling lonely. In other words, some of us can cope pretty well with bouts of loneliness. Others may find even a small degree of isolation unbearable. The difficulty here is that if loneliness becomes a problem that persists, it starts to affect our ability to deal with it. If one is lonely, then the kind of normal everyday stresses of life can become difficult to deal with. Loneliness may cause our sleep to be less refreshing. The third aspect is what they term mental representations and expectations of, as well as reasoning about, others. Put into somewhat plainer English, we're all trying to make sense of our experience by way of framing it, 
and making it part of the narrative we create to organize our varied experiences. Normally, this kind of framing works reasonably well. However, when we're truly lonely, our framing takes on a negative tinge and can, in time, significantly impair our functioning. Think about your own sense of connection to others. Perhaps you're the kind of person who grew up in a small town and like being in an atmosphere in which you're strongly connected to people in your community. Or perhaps you're like Katie, growing up in a small town or dreary suburb, and you long to get out of there as soon as possible. Some of us manage that transition much better than others. For me, when I graduated from college, I felt I needed to get away, and I moved to another continent. To be honest, part of that was just to get away from the evangelical world in which I was so ensconced. But I think an important piece of this puzzle is that I grew up moving about every four years, and so moving became, in effect, a way of life. Was it difficult to move? You bet. That move from Illinois to Texas when I would have started high school in the ninth grade in Illinois, but got stuck in my last year of middle school in Texas was a difficult experience, to say the least. One of the significant difficulties of loneliness is it can greatly affect you epistemologically and socially. Lonely people are much more likely to hear comments as critical or belittling. When those kinds of negative interpretations become the norm, then we can end up in a defensive posture in which even harmless comments can seem hard to hear. In terms of social interactions, loneliness may make it much harder for us to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and make us socially awkward. The problem is that when you reach such a state, even the good relationships you have can be viewed more negatively, leading to a heightened sense of loneliness. Here's how the authors describe that situation. When we feel isolated, we perceive ourselves as doing all we can on behalf of our relationships, even when all objective evidence indicates otherwise. It is the lonely roommate who throws around snide comments all evening, and then when she meets resistance to the insult, says, you're always criticizing me. When this leads to an argument, she may be the one who starts to yell, requiring others to raise their voices ever so slightly as they try to reason with her. Stop yelling at me is a not unlikely response from someone whose social cognition perceives a world that's threatening on all sides and whose ability to self-regulate has been disrupted by those same perceptions. If you reach this point, others around you might consider you to be a, a little difficult or needy. Less the likely result is that many people will pull away from such a person, which means that the loneliness not only persists, but it grows. It shouldn't be hard to see that this can easily lead to a downward spiral. A well-regulated, socially contented person sends social signals that are more harmonious and more in sync with the rest of the environment. Not surprisingly, the signals he or she receives back are more harmonious and better synchronized as well. It's precisely when we can be in a state free from both social pain and any sense of threat that a connection with others is possible. We've talked about the fact that some of us develop into persons who need a great deal of personal interaction and others of us need considerably less. To be sure, some of this is going to be influenced by our genes. This raises, of course, the whole question of nature versus nature nurture. 
However, the psychologist Donald Hebb suggests that the question, which contributes more to personality, nature or nurture, to a question like, which contributes more to the area of a rectangle, the length or the width? Clearly, the answer is both, though it's important to see that genes and the environment go together, with each acting on the other. Our gene pools are such that there are many options that can, by way of environment, be actualized or triggered. The authors suggest that our level of vulnerability to feeling disconnected is in part at the mercy of our genes. The self-regulation that keeps our social receptors free of static can be difficult when the environment does all it can to frustrate our pursuit of what we demand from our genes. But our thoughts are something we can address directly, which is why we can use social cognition as a leverage point for regaining control of our social experience. The way we think about social situations can prepare us to metabolize the almost medicinal qualities of social warmth, or it can set us up to confirm the cynical aphorism that hell is other people. When loneliness is chronic rather than simply acute, our ability to read social cues can become difficult. We can find ourselves in the state where we see many social signals as negative, where someone who is not lonely might find these to be perfectly fine. To understand why this is the case, we need to keep in mind that reading social cues is something that we do almost automatically. But this point shouldn't make us think that reading such cues is either easy or straightforward. I've made the point many times that our understanding of the world begins with our emotions, which is the level at which we operate for many interactions. Those impressions that are first formed by emotions or sentiments are then eligible for reassessment by our rational brain. If we are lonely, our first impression of others and what they say will likely be more negative than if we were not lonely. If we are really lonely, then we'll tend to anticipate that others are negative toward us, and thus we prime ourselves for rejection. However, if we feel socially connected, remember there's a difference here between actually being socially connected and having the feeling that we are connected, then we are much more likely to think of negative outcomes from interactions with other people as just bad luck or anomalies rather than the norm. In contrast, a chronic sense of loneliness leads us to see even small negative things as far more important and dangerous and threatening than they really are. The point the authors are making is that loneliness can be something like our default mode, which has significant effects on our bodies. Here's what they say. Loneliness, by contrast, can make us less able to get beyond even the normal disruptions, setbacks, and mistakes of day-to-day -day life. The ability to let go of such events has, in turn, consequences that are not just social but physiological. Loneliness creates a subtle but persistent difference in cardiovascular function that sets the stage for trouble later in life. When we are lonely over a long period of time, there are bodily changes that, the longer they stay in place, the more likely we are to engage in unhealthy behaviors. Here again the authors. For young people, loneliness is not associated with overtly unhealthy behaviors. 
among young adults. In fact, alcohol consumption, at least as represented by social drinking, is actually less of a problem among those who are lonely than among those who feel socially connected. By middle age, however, lonely adults consume more alcohol and engage in less vigorous exercise than those who are not lonely. Their diet is higher in fat. They sleep just as much as the non-lonely, but their sleep is less efficient, meaning less restorative, and they report feeling more daytime fatigue. The main point of this analysis is that feelings of loneliness can be reinforced over time, so that they actually result in further loneliness. Of course, the authors stress that getting stuck in the place of feeling lonely is not because we've done something wrong. Everyone can feel isolated at points in their lives. The problem is that when we get to the point of feeling out of touch with others, it often leads to further loneliness, since a common result of feeling lonely is a lack of desire to get in touch with others. We evolved to be social beings. But when we feel there's something wrong with our social connections, or our lack of them, we become upset. One of the principal features that sets human beings apart from other beings is that we have developed what is usually called theory of mind, which is a somewhat complicated way of saying that we're little, literally able to discern what other people are thinking. Not in the sense that you can read someone else's mind, but in the sense that we as human beings are able to recognize the mental state of other human beings. Normally, this aspect of human cognition is a good thing, since it allows us to get along with and cooperate with others. However, loneliness often leads to frustration and can result in depression, inability to get along with or cooperate with others, and other such kinds of factors. When that happens, the difficulty is that it's hard to go back to what used to be normal. Loneliness, in effect, becomes the new normal. But this sets in motion a process that can reinforce itself. Once this feedback loop starts rumbling through our lives, others start to view us less favorably because of our self-protective, sometimes distant, sometimes caustic behavior. This, in turn, merely reinforces our pessimistic social expectations. Now others really are beginning to treat us badly, which seems like adding insult to injury, which spins the cycle of defensive behavior and negative social results even further downhill. The authors provide an account of a psychological experiment that when you hear about it, you'll probably think, ooh, that sounds really cruel. One group of volunteers for the experiment were told that they just happened to be the kind of people that would be successful in life. They were literally told, and now I'm quoting, you're the type who'll have rewarding relationships throughout your life. Most likely you'll have enduring friendships throughout your life. Most likely you'll have enduring friendships and a long and happy marriage with plenty of people who will always care deeply about you. Imagine if a group of psychologists, people who deal with both mental health healthiness and mental illness were to predict your life in this way, how would it affect you? Perhaps you'll be better able to answer this question when you hear what the other group was told. And I'm quoting, hate to say this, but according to these results, you're the type who probably will end up alone. You may have friends and relationships now, but by your mid-twenties, most of these will have drifted away. You might get married. Actually, you might have several marriages but they're all likely to fail. 
Certainly they won't continue into your 30s. Relationships just won't last for you. Odds are you'll end up being more alone the longer you live. Then the researchers give a portion of the GRE, that's a graduate record exam, that's designed to measure general aptitude. I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that the future belonging group, in other words, the group that was told that their friendships and romantic relations, re relationships were going to be great, scored much better on the exam than those who had just been told that their fate was to be all alone. In other words, being told that you're going to be alone for the rest of your life undermined this group's ability to think clearly. By the way, those involved in these experiments were later told all about what they were designed to achieve and thus came to realize that neither thing they were told, you'll have friends galore or you'll die alone, was actually true. I do have to wonder, though, if despite this later clarifying information, whether those who were told they were alone were affected in any way by what they later learned was fake news. The authors frame these discoveries in terms of maintaining control of ourselves, something that is part of our lives from the beginning until the end. As youngsters, we are taught to share our toys, to get along with our siblings, and many other things. Over time, we normally become better at controlling ourselves. This is called maturity, which, by the way, is why some children act much more maturely than do some adults. So maturity is not simply getting older. These same psychologists decided to set up an additional study, one designed to test the ability of participants to control their behavior. The experiment was framed as a taste test, like a wine tasting, but with a specific caveat. Each of those involved in the study were given a bowl of 35 cookies. Their task was to taste test the cookies to determine their taste, texture, and smell. You can probably already guess what happened. Those who had been told that they faced a future of disconnection ate roughly nine cookies. That's an average. Which turned out to be roughly twice the amount eaten by those who'd been told that they'd have a life full of social connections. What makes this experiment even more interesting is that many of those who felt disconnected and ate more cookies actually determined that the cookies were, at best, mediocre and yet they ate twice as many as the socially connected people who rated them as good or excellent. Loneliness, of course, often has the result that we try to make new friends or make good impressions when we first meet people and even try to view others more favorably than reality might suggest. However, when our attempts at friendship or even just simple social connection are thwarted, those impulses can become negative in nature. In a different experiment, when some participants were made to feel excluded or marginalized, they gave much harsher evaluations of the other participants who were much less likely to donate to a student fund or to help out a stranger. Even though lonely people retain the ability to be more socially connected, loneliness may keep that from happening. Loneliness undercuts our confidence and promotes a general negativity. One of the consistent results from these experiments was that lonely people rated themselves as less socially adept. The authors point out that feelings of loneliness tap into the most disturbing force or fear that was felt in our earliest moments in life, the sense of being helpless or dangerously 
alone. There are only a few things I can remember from the years that my family lived in Minneapolis. One is getting lost only a few blocks away from my house. It was the first time I had ever been lost. And the sense of being helpless, you're lost. You don't even know what direction you should go and feeling in danger. I did manage to find my way home. That's the good news. We spent a good deal of time examining loneliness as a phenomenon. I hope you found this deep dive into loneliness helpful. One of the reasons I make this podcast is that, like you, I want to learn too. My own experience is that as we age, we are faced with a choice that isn't exactly either or, but it's not too far away from that. Namely, we can decide that we already know all we need to know and thus be likely to discount any new information. Or we can decide to keep learning. You can take the blue pill if you want. But of course, if you take the bread pill, then you will find out some things that will make you uncomfortable. However, I'm assuming that if you're listening to this podcast, you're the kind of person who is inclined to take the red pill. Note that, unlike the Matrix, you don't have to make a one-time decision that will change your life completely. In other words, there may be times you decide to take the blue pill regarding certain things. You don't have to figure everything out. As I like to say about some philosophical questions, I don't have an opinion on that. But I hope what you've learned from these two episodes is that loneliness is serious stuff. You can choose to ignore the now overwhelming evidence that those in Western society are much less connected than we used to be. For instance, in a survey done in 2004, respondents asked if they had someone to talk to about important matters who were three times more likely to respond negatively than those who had been tested back in 1985. If you think about it, that's a 300% jump in loneliness in less than three decades. The problem here is that human physiology was established many thousands of years ago when households were big, communities were close-knit, and having contact with your neighbors was the norm. Put another way, we are the same creatures that we were 60,000 years ago, and yet our circumstances have changed radically. We're exactly the same kinds of beings as our ancestors who were frightened of being alone and sought comfort in being together. One of the things that we tend to forget is that our environment is not just composed of natural and human-made objects. It also consists of the other humans who are part of our lives. As the authors put it, for social animals, a highly significant part of that environment is each other. And thus members of families, tribes, and villages regulate themselves as individuals while also influencing one another through what we have called co-regulation. This system of checks and balances involves physiology as well as behavior. Co-regulation takes place, for example, not only when the presence of sexually receptive females increases the level of testosterone in the blood of nearby males, but also when apes spend hours grooming each other. By the way, although this is not exactly the topic of this episode, it's still worth mentioning that human beings are not inherently selfish. Instead, we are deeply social creatures that have evolved to an advanced degree precisely because we 
are altruistic. In other words, it's precisely the fact that we were able to be generous that most explains why we have done so well as a species. Explaining how all of this works would be an episode in itself, but the simplest way to put it is that we are beings who do care about other people, and indeed we care about how other people think. Yes, sociopaths exist, like Donald Trump, but the fact that most of us aren't like that, but are also repelled by such a way of being, is significant evidence that we are not purely selfish creatures. We are beings that crave connection and can have significant mental and physical ailments when we don't feel connected, which means that loneliness needs to be taken very seriously. That's all for today's episode. I hope you found that thinking about loneliness and the ways in which it can be addressed has been helpful for your own journey. Perhaps this episode has made you more aware of the epidemic of loneliness. I hope it also has the effect of goading you into being more concerned about loneliness, such that you work on creative, concrete ways of alleviating it. As always, if you're finding the podcast to be helpful in your becoming, consider supporting it at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. You can, of course, just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.